0: It's so nice to see you all. My name is Russell Steinberg. I think many of you know me. Uh, I'm a composer and I uh, also conduct the Los Angeles Youth Orchestra. And during the pandemic, I started a group of classical music listeners and I call it Russell's Classical Consortium and I have some of them here today. Uh, I see the hands. Hi, Diana. Anyway, if you'd like to be the part of that group or you'd just like to be on my email list where I write about classical music and my own projects, just please uh, here, you can I'm, you can just pass this book around and please just write your email as legibly as possible, keeping in mind that ones, I's, and for some people L's, it's all the same. Is, the, is it a little too loud? Yeah, Kevin. If we could have a little less volume. Oh, you want it? I'm going to leave my mask on. I'm sorry. And I don't have to, but I'd like to do that because um, 2,300 people are dying a day, and I just think that should be acknowledged. Okay. Today we're going to we're going to spend some incredible time with music. The program. This program is just amazing. We're gonna be hearing a brand new piano concerto by a conductor and composer from Iceland, Daniel Barnason. And I have not heard the piece, so I can't tell you about it, but listening to his other music, this is someone, a young person, who has really has a deep understanding already of the orchestra. And uh, you can go online and hear his violin concerto, where the violinist has to whistle while he's playing <laughs> the whole time. So it's, it's really, I, and I asked uh, one of the Phil players, there will be no whistling in this piece, but there are a few other surprises. And you can read in your program notes, uh, it's a piece that's also very affected by the pandemic, and it's called Feast and it it has a lot of you know you can see it's dealing with images of light and dark and i think it will be a f- fantastic uh experience i'm looking forward to it you know writing a piano concerto now is is really there's an open question like what what is it trying to do i'm t- actually giving a course right now in piano concertos and you know in the the piano concertos we normally listen to here in the 19th century, right, you know, or even early 20th, it's always about the the question of solo versus orchestra. It's always been about that contention. And yet, in a lot of the later 20th century and 21st century concertos, it's really about exploring other ideas and you know, there's a good there's there's good precedent for that because Beethoven already in his uh, C minor piano, piano concerto tried to imagine the concerto instead as a symphony, and Brahms did the same thing with his his piano concerto. So um, I'll i look forward to hearing how, what you think of the of the piece today. I'm going to talk with you about the Bartok music for strings, percussion, celesta, and the Sibelius Seventh. Can I see a show of hands? Who is going to be hearing the Sibelius Seventh for the first time? Let me just get a few, a lot of you, quite a few of you. It's Sibelius' final symphony. It's a unique piece. Some people feel it's, it's one of his best symphonies and one of the fine works of the 20th century. How many of you are going to be hearing Bartok's music for strings, percussion, celeste for the first time? Just as many hands. So this is going to be an unbelievable treat for you, because um, I think there's a good case to be made. It's one of the greatest works of the 20th century. Uh, it's right up there with Rite of Spring and, um, you know, *Pierrot Lunaire and so, so you know, just a few other works, really. Uh, it, it is, it's, a, it's kind of a miracle. Both of these pieces deal with two miracles, and I want you to think about that when you're listening. One is the miracle of harmony, just just the gorgeous sound of harmony. The Sibelius opens with just a scale, and then you get this incredible minor chord, and then... And that just moving one note this way, one note that way, makes all the difference. I'll play them. feelings you have as it goes through those colors are so powerful. The Bartok is the same thing, so they both deal with the magic of harmony. The other thing they deal with is the magic of scale, and I don't mean, well, two kinds of scale, the scale we think of, you know, Domé-Ré, but the other kind of scale, the scale of order between the macrocosm and the microcosm. Both of these composers are fascinated by this, and this, to me, I'm just going to tell you personally, this was my entrance to finally understanding and loving 20th century, you know, what we called contemporary music. I know that's a bar for a lot of people still, but this is what really got me excited, this piece by Bartók especially. I suddenly kind of got it, this idea of working, of being able to go from the large to the small, just like Beethoven does in the Fifth Symphony. So, in, in Bartók's, what's so great about this piece is it he shows you how he gets to a densely chromatic language from the language you and I are all familiar with, and I'm going to show you right now how that happens. So the first thing, this piece is, is, is a, it creates a sound unlike any other piece of music you've heard, but it eventually reveals where it came from, and it came from a kind of folk music, and you hear this at the end, So Very tonal, very beautiful. Let's sing that. And so ya OK. and'll go. da da One more time. <laughs> this is for real now. And. Uh, and then go up. Da da, ya, da, da, da da this beautiful expressive phrase, right? Now, Bartok imagines, you know, uh, microscoping that in, I guess, you know, and make it now instead of wide, small, and you get this. Hear the difference? So we had now. Now we're into the insect world, okay? So let's sing this one. Let listen one more time. Okay, and. It's harder, it's harder. Listen, they're very close together. Okay, one more time, and. Ooh, much better. (laughs) And then the second phrase. I'll do it again. Okay, and. Really lovely. Can you feel as you're singing that you have to really focus when it gets into the into the kind of microscopic world to me to get the pitches really in there da, 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 da. it's just very close and when you watch the string players you 'll see if you watch their fingers are very close to one another, having to make those distinctions so bar talk in doing this creates a sound no one has heard before and it is absolutely beautiful so you, this is the, the tune by the way, those of you who are into uh, you know the um, arithmetic of it, you know, it's very interesting. The first, it starts with five notes, then it goes to seven notes, so it, it deals with all kinds of interesting odd symmetries. So it, it's, he, he opens this as a fugue. Now, you guys know Bach fugues, right? You know? So, you're always hearing one tune, and then it gets imitated with another voice, and then it gets imitated with another voice. And it always goes in the same kind of order. You get it, you get the tune, and then when it gets answered, it doesn't get answered, it gets answered five notes above. So, yeah, and then it goes back to the original. So in box fugues, it always just bounces between the melody and then the melody five notes higher, pretty much. So Bartók takes this idea to a different level, so he has the idea, why just go back to the same thing? Why don't we just keep going five notes higher each time? And it ends up an amazing sound, so you get the fugue subject, the, we call the theme in a fugue the subject. By the way, the entire piece is based on this melody. Then you get the answer, then you get the third voice in. You get the idea that the harmony is so unusual, you know. Very different than the 19th century harmony. He's created this new world. And when you hear it, it has such a, an amazing sound to it. You never forget it. Let me give you an example of what it's here. Here's with a few entries. to have no harmonies you'd recognize in the prior to the 20th century, but it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's a world, it's just unlike any other, and it's completely convincing because Bartok has thought the structure through on so many levels. It's just as complex as tonality, and this is one reason this piece is a miracle. By the way, just to watch the, hear the piece live is so important. And I, I'm so excited myself to hear it, because but the way Bartók writes the piece, it's, well, first of all, what a ridiculous title, right? Music for Strings, Percussion Cheles. This starts the whole, you know, the whole 20th century idea of let's create a title that is impossible to remember, and has nothing to do with anything you're used to. And so, what you have here, it's, it's such an original conception. The strings are in two separate string orchestras. And they usually, he, he actually writes that they're supposed to face each other. Why does he want that? He wants you to have a stereo effect between the two, for you listening out there, right? Then he puts the percussion in the back. And it's—and it, 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 so just even the idea of the piece is already creates a new sound before he's even written any music. The other thing that's so remarkable is is that the composition is Is so controlled and perfect. So I told you, he has the idea, like, if we start from here, why don't we just keep going up by fifths with the fugue? And let's have the first, the second voice go a fifth higher, and then we'll have the third voice go a fifth lower. Then we'll keep repeating that process. So you got it. And if you go far enough, you get to this note. We start on A, and this is E-flat it comes to an octave. Octave's a big deal, because this language avoids octaves unless it's a big moment. So you start from here, and you end here. The other reason that makes sense is if you take that note, and you just go out as a scale in contrary motion, you'll hit that same note. And that's where he's going. So the piece, the the first movement, the fugue, it goes to that moment as a big climax, and then guess what it does going back? Just reverses the process. Or going by fifths, it goes, you know. You go you get back to the you get back to that note. So by the way, did you notice? That's the kind of sound that he gets. That's where that sound comes. He, bi- he obviously played the chromatic scale over and over and over and adopted that as a sound, but, but a very particular sound based on... So let me, let me just walk you through a little bit how that, how that works. So the subject entries continue. Now, th- then you build towards this big climax to that note I told you, E-flat. And then you hit this moment. That's. Did you hear what it did when it got to the top? It went backwards, right? Instead of it goes, it goes inverted. So as he goes backwards, everything has this mirror image, and this idea of mirror image becomes a really important idea in the piece. So as it descends, 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 going backwards, 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 a little bit like the movie Memento, (laughs) um, you get this great moment there when it comes back all the way back to the original A. And when it comes back to the A, that's, then that would be near the end of the piece, logically, right? He, this is what makes Bartok a genius, rather than just someone who could come up with an interesting structure. He has the idea of creating a sound no one has ever heard before. He has the celesta, which we haven't heard till now, come in with these very eerie, eerie night sounds as he calls them, like the sounds of the night with the, with the night birds and insects. And then what he does, he has the tune play both going forwards and going inverted at the same time. And so you have the top, you have the, uh, the, uh, the bottom violin that has the tune, and then the top violin goes And they play together as in a duet. So I'm going to play you what that sounds like. You won't even notice that because the celeste is so, it's just such an amazing sound, it captivates you. But that's what's going on structurally, and it makes total sense. And then when you hear both of them, that's why I do these up lives. Once you can hear both of these at the same time, you'll just go, wow, wow. And so let's listen to that. that an amazing sound? It's like you'd never heard that before. This is how you fall in love with contemporary music because it just everything is coming together in so, so many interesting ways and you're just transported to a different world. So how does he end it? He ends it to, to show you the structure. He wants you to understand how he built the piece. So he ends it so you can actually hear it. He, he disintegrates the whole thing so you just hear the bones. That's forwards and and inverted at the same time. Forwards, inverted. Then just fewer notes disappearing, just like Mahler. But what he does at the end is show you the bounds. Showed you how the whole thing works. All right, let me make sure I. remarkable. That's just the first movement, folks, (laughs) that it's enough, right? It's enough. He picks up on all it, so that those ideas are in in all the movements and the invention just goes on from there. Let me show you what I mean. The the opening starts like you're just hearing a kind of peasant theme. Doesn't seem that special. That's kind of the thud-thudding that a lot of uh, post-World War II composers used to mock Bartok about. You know, it just seemed very kind of peasantly, nothing special, but boy, he has a lot in mind. First, he gives you some wonderful scherzos in this piece. Tunes. Folk tunes. Okay, here's another one okay then things get really interesting you get these amazing swoops where the violins have to do these glissando and listen how interesting the sound is And then he sets up an amazing thing. You don't expect it, because it just sounds like it's kind of a normal movement, but then he hasn't forgot the magic he did in that first movement. And so what he does here is he sets up an ostinato. You know, an ostinato is a repeated figure, uh, like Stravinsky used in the Rite of Spring. He kind of does the same thing, but in his bar talky way. I told you the whole piece he looked for an analog between what we had in the classic era. And for Bartok, it was this. So you, you know, so that that became his. Uh, so that became the Bartok tonic and dominant. And so he does that with chords. He gives you with And that's his ostinato, so you get... But then, what comes after, what comes on top of that, his layering, remember he's in a lot of orders, you get these amazing chords. What is that, if you slowed it down? Sound familiar? <laughs> That's the tune from the first movement. But it doesn't feel like it. Uh, da, dun, dun. So I, I thought it'd be fun for you. It, it, one of the fun things of this, just like Stravinsky, is where's the beat? Where's the beat? If we slow it down, one and, two and. I want you to say that with me over and over. And, one and, two and. one. Uh-oh. And two and one and two and one and two and one and one. one and. <laughs> okay, faster now. Okay, I think I've practiced one and two and one. And okay, let's do that. Ready? And one, two, one and two and one, one, two, one. Two, one. <laughs> okay. Faster. One and two and one and two and. <laughs> you get a sense? You can't predict when it's going to come out, right? So let's listen to this great moment in Bartok. It's the second movement. and it's a great moment. If I hadn't told you that was the theme for the first moment, you wouldn't have guessed, right? It's so, it's so imaginative. The other thing, it's so imaginative, the reason you've never heard, you've never heard sounds like that, is he invented a new kind of sound for the strings. It's called Bartok snap pizzicato, and what you do is you take your finger under the string, you'll see that, and instead of pulling to the side of your instrument, when you're plucking, you pull up so when you pull up, it snaps right back on it, because a thud on the instrument. That, th- that thwack is what you're hearing that makes it so percussive. So it doesn't sound like it's a string instrument anymore. It's the, the, the violins, cellos and viols become percussion instruments. And that's coloring the piano, you know what I mean? It, it gives the piano a sound it never had before. The piano just playing regularly, but it sounds like it's a prepared piano because of the, the strings plucking that way. So that's, a, that's just an amazing moment. Um, and then you hear after that the most incredible virtuoso plucking in the world. This, this, this shows Tchaikovsky he didn't go far enough in his, uh, his symphony. The whole plucking orchestra, and it gets wilder and wilder as it goes, and then you have a big recap, and then you're set up for the third movement. By this point you think, what more could Bartok possibly do? But it's the third movement, the slow movement, that really has the heart of the piece. It's also the most modern sounding. It starts with uh, this very famous opening with the xylophone, where the xylophone does a kind of palindrome. It starts slowly, increases, and then slows down. As you see, Bartok's music is all about discovering similarities, self-similarities, on all these different levels. So, Bartok thinks fractally, and, and, and so here's the opening of the third moment. this fantastic glissando on the timpani. And then we have the strings coming. What an original opening at that time. I cannot tell you how many pieces post-World War II begin kind of that way to imitate Bartok, but with him, there's a reason for that. He's already built up the idea of symmetries and palindromes, and this, so then when you hear it melodically, you make the connection. Bartok was also famous for creating what he called night music, I mentioned that before, the kind of sounds of the night, the insect. And, And here, he is probably his most beautiful exponent of that in this third movement. Notice the tune. From the few. That sets it up. Aren't you glad we sang it? <laughs> There's the insects. With Sandy on the violin. This eerie Pilesta melody. I know you think that you're listening to a 1950s horror film or a science fiction film. Where do you think they got the idea? They could. They were trying to. What music would sound more outer space than outer space? And it's Bartok. This piece of Bartok's. Right. Extraordinary sounds. So we kind of take it for granted now. But, but this is where we first heard it. And this is just a fantastic. Thing. I want to go right to the. Uh, to the fourth movement, because I want to make sure I have some time to talk about the Sibelius seven. The, um, the fourth movement really starts as a tonal piece, and what I love about this piece is that Bartók, he's not just showing you this new language, he's showing you, it's not like Schoenberg saying, you know, forget anything that happened before 20th century, now is important. Bartók's saying, no, this new language I've created, I'm going to show you where it comes from. It comes from all the music you know. And I think that's what's so, so powerful to me about the fourth movement. So it starts with this kind of open, familiar folk sounds. That's A major, by the way. A was the note that starts the piece. OK, that's the first time we've heard a major scale. You know, it's modal, but it's still something we can recognize. Then we get a peasant theme. That reminds us of the second movement that we were going one-and-two-and, one-and-two-and. And. Then he gives us some really tonal folk music. Pentatonic. So you get that. Then he shows you a connection to Bach. This is so amazing. Now there's a moment. It sounds just like the Brandenburg Concerto Number 6. Well, not just like the same rhythm. It's going. On? What Brandenburg Concerto? Yeah. And then the peasant song gets into nya nya, like a children's song, and he gives you the chromatic. So he shows you how he can start to go from this tonal world to his Bartoky world in the insect world. Right, just playing. In case you didn't get it, he then shows you, okay, here's the tune of the whole piece, but I'll show you where it came from. This would be the way it would be if I translated it into our tonal language that we all know. That's what we sang at the beginning. now he's going to give it courts you all know now it sounds like wc revel Much more comfortable perhaps, but it just, I don't know, to me, it's such a revelation that in this piece he creates a language you've never heard, but he shows how it's related to everything you know. Do you know what I mean? So this, when you listen to it, think of it in this context. The Sibelius Seventh um, <laughs> is, is actually in retrograde of this, because Sibelius is writing this a little before Bartok uh, at a time where modernism is just, you know, is there's such a huge political push to dispense with tonality and be modern. And here Sibelius writes this one movement piece for orchestra. He's not, he doesn't even think of it as a symphony yet. It's it just a fantasy. And he writes it in C major. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, I can't write this. And so he's, he's mining all the tonal stuff we do, and yet it's a very modern piece. Because, like Bartok, Sibelius is fascinated with microcosm and macrocosm and microcosm and how those two relate. And in fact, what's so modern about this piece, it's, like most Sibelius pieces, it's, a, its music is about becoming, becoming. How, how do you get something out of the ether? You know, I think with Sibelius, he's much more a sculptor than a painter. You know, the painter has a blank canvas and applies things on it. Sculptor has the, you know, the block of marble has to see the art in it and then subtract. I, I always feel you can always hear in Sibelius's music that the ether he lives within are scales. I'm conducting the Sibelius Second Symphony now myself, and the whole thing is built on, and, and what does it mean to go, over and over. And then he comes up with some. Uh, nah, nah. And then he takes it. How about if I go we go down. So he, he's dealing with this this ether of scales and then carving things out. And then something like in Beethoven and Mozart, you get the theme right off the bat. Sibelius, you're lucky if you get the theme by the end. <laughs> okay. You know, he's it's, it's just about becoming. And so we have this kind of ether that he gives you at the very beginning of this piece. You know, it's hardly anything like the Bartok, because what you get at the very beginning is a scale. The only thing Bartokian about it, so to speak, is that the timpani has the first note. Okay, and then, then we get It really starts that way, right? Just a scale, all white notes. And then suddenly, one, that black note, the E-flat. And then suddenly you're in the world of Wagner. Well, that sounds like, right? Like Tristan and his old, which is also a piece about becoming, about becoming, or about trying to get to an orgasm, actually. But
1: you
0: know, and so in a, Sibelius is giving you the clue that this piece also is about trying to find itself. And then, and, and you can see what happens. It doesn't go like Wagner into increasing dissatisfaction. Instead, you get you get this beautiful. Oh, it's like you hear harmony for the first time. Such a beautiful moment. But then you get the this French chord and you don't know where it's gonna go. And then of above of, of, and the flutes like WC. In fact, I would argue that a big idea behind Sibelius' writing in this, I think he had La Mer on the brain, Debussy's La Mer, because La Mer is about the whole beauty of harmony more than melodic ideas, and I think that's, that was something that was, he was thinking of. So when you listen to this intro, you'll, you'll feel that. Wagner's Tristan, that's something new, bright sunlight, warm sunlight, it's it colored, just trying to form, and these kind of Debussy sounds. So it's it's not a piece that's found itself, but it's inhabiting different worlds very temporarily. And then you get to, I call it the Palestrina section. It's a hymn, but if I was to show you the music, the reason I call it Palestrina is, um, Palestrina, when he wrote music, he um, you know, his famous masses, you look at the music and it's all white notes. There's no black notes in it. And that's what this looks like, the score here. Suddenly, it looks like it's Renaissance almost. There's just nothing. It's just this beautiful hymn and very, very slow. You know, and... um. i Uh. Uh. Just simple, beautiful, flowing sequences. Let me play just a little bit of this beautiful white note section. is it, this builds for quite a while, and then when it builds, you, f- you hear something that's almost like a theme, and this becomes the big idea of the piece. It's like what it's trying to become, and you hear it in the trombones, and this, it's just a motto. Yeah. You'll hear these notes, and it's it's just, it's more a feeling than anything you would hum, and it's just a moment of great glory. it's not a way you could tap your feet. It just seems to emanate, and that's part of the beauty of it. It's not quite a theme, but it seems to be a motto of something this piece is trying to become. And then you get the second big idea, this wind theme. sequence higher So it's almost like Wagnerian light motifs. And then you've got, you got this um So you've get these two fragments, and the rest of the symphony builds towards this you get a place that's, really, I think, comes almost out of La Mer, this kind of Debussy scherzo music. This recalls the flutes from the opening. This becomes a fast dance. Faster where it picks up some speed. So that becomes like a like a fast scherzo. And then you get to these snaky scales where the scales we're hearing. By the way, I forgot to mention when the trombone came in, did you notice that what preceded it was the strings doing a scale? which is the same scale they had at the very beginning of the piece. I meant to point that out. So then you get the snaky scale out of the scherzo, and the trombone theme emerges. Tries to... (laughs) These are chromatic G-scales now. Halfway through this piece, and we haven't had a theme. We've had fragments. And this is, I don't know another piece of music like this. So now, like, we're more than halfway through it, and then we've, the music finds a theme, which it was supposed to begin with. And this is the theme. That's a theme we recognize from Dvorak, or whatever, you know. You know, and, um, you know it's like, how did it, it, it took that long to find this. And then he exposed, he then, it's like, okay, now i found what I'm going to work on. <laughs> and so, and now he starts to develop it. And then you hear it, you hear it then an E flat, it goes from C major to E flat, which of course is the direction of the whole piece. Okay, so then you hit, see, and it becomes like a, a, almost a typical de Bourgeois development. And so I, I ran out of time, I just saw that, so I don't want to have the hook. So you'll get this idea, I just want to play you before you forget that you get this big, the piece comes to a huge climax where you get to hear this trombone theme, and a very dramatic moment with that wind theme, it's an unforgettable moment. Let me play you two seconds of that. <laughs> Okay, that gives you a window into this piece. You're going to love this concert. Thank you for participating and listening. Sign my book if you want to be on the list. Thank you.